0: of the art vs. commerce podcast proudly presented by masters in motion this week is with gaffer jim Planet. uh it is hard to summarize how absolutely incredible jim's career has been he has been a gaffer in hollywood since the early 1950s his dad was a gaffer in hollywood in the 30s his dad gaffed it's a wonderful life it's been a family profession from the beginning, though Jim, uh, you know, tells his story and that he did spend some of his early years trying to do other things before settling on uh, being a gaffer. But his career spans many decades, and the uh, it's a hit list of some of the best movies ever made. Uh, he was the gaffer for E.T. He was the gaffer for Braveheart. He was the gaffer for Magnolia. He was the gaffer for Ocean's Eleven. I could just run down a whole sheet and your head would explode. Check out his filmography on IMDB just to get a sheer breath of all that he has uh, been a part of. And he's just a sheer joy to talk to. I think Jim fully understands how amazing his career is, and I think he understands how, th- the power of telling the stories of that career. You know, um, we first met Jim when he was a speaker at Masters of Motion in Motion uh, in Austin, Texas. At the filmmaking conference, and you know, he was just this encyclopedia of his of of filmmaking, not just on the technical side, but just the sheer stories that this man has um, from so many years in the business. I mean, he even came to our recording with an iPad just to show us some photos from his life throughout the years when we uh, when we stopped recording, just because just because he knows it's great. <laughs> um, so that's that's who Jim is, and being able to talk to him about. His career and about his thoughts on it, and also, you know, in particular about being a gaffer instead of being a DP and how that came to be for him. Um, I think, you know, I'll leave I'll leave it to him to tell you all. Um, it's really a joy to be able to talk to someone like this, um, and he is still going. Uh, we when we recorded in a couple days, he was heading off to New Mexico to gaff a project for six weeks in the desert. So uh, he, by all means, is uh, still kicking it. And still gaffing and still has a complete joy for it. He is the ultimate definition of uh, being a filmmaker, being a storyteller. He's, he's a living legend, and uh, it was an absolute honor to be able to talk with him. And so, like I said, we are presented by Masters in Motion, which is also where we met Jim. It is a, a three-day filmmaking conference in Austin, Texas, uh, held there every year in December, and it is where you get to meet people like Jim. You get to meet ASC cinematographers, ACE editors, production designers on the, on the same caliber, and... Um, and everybody gives presentations, they, they speak, but also what's really cool is that they then hang out. And, you know, at night we go out to the bars and you can buy your favorite filmmakers a beer and pick their brain and, and really get to uh, chat, which I think uh, really sets the event apart. So that's Masters in Motion. But uh, it is my pleasure to have you all for the Jim uh, Planet Hour on ABC. like sitting down trying to think about how to ask questions with you and how to talk to you. And it seems that it's kind of inevitable that it starts really all the way at the beginning, being born into a, an industry household and having a, a, a prolific uh, gaffer as a father. And so I just wanted to know, to start, what was it like um, growing up in a household where um, someone was part of the film industry and, and making, in a major way, making major movies?
1: Well, my, my home life as a child was, was kind of strange because uh, when I was little, even when, when my father was working in Los Angeles, they were working six-day weeks. And uh, the motion picture business was the last industry to go to a five-day week. Oh, I didn't know that. And it just, so I, I didn't get to see my dad very much. Yeah. And, uh, and then, of course, he would go away on location for long periods of time. But it was, you know, the movie business was a part of our lives, and I used to visit my dad on movie sets, and uh, you know he did. uh, I wish I knew all the movies that he'd done, but I, I don't. Mm -hmm. But uh, he did do. It's a wonderful life. Yeah. And at the end of that movie, instead of a wrap party, they had a wrap picnic. Oh, that's great. At a park in North Hollywood, and I was there. I was six years old, and uh, it they had foot races and all kinds of things and I, I never was very athletic but I ran in one of these foot races and I actually came in third and Jimmy Stewart gave me a dollar for coming in third <laughs> and commented that I had run in my bare feet. <laughs> I so love that, was, you rem- that you remember that. Oh, vividly.
0: Was Were you aware um, that how, how novel and unique what your dad was doing was?
1: I think so because you know, none of my friends had any kind of a life like that, and their fathers were, you know, a tailor or a, law- or a lawyer or whatever. Yeah. But nothing quite as exotic as as my father.
0: And at what at what point, I guess you you were, you must have been raised to be a lover of
1: films. Well, or, it's you, or in, not. It's interesting. I I grew up loving movies, but my father was not an avid moviegoer. No. He worked in the movie business, but he didn't go to a lot of movies. Kind of. Like I did. You don't
0: want to take your work home, kind of thing? I,
1: I don't know. I mean, that's, he was not uncommon at the time. Right. Um, so I, I don't understand that. I mm. still don't. But, um, but as I was growing up, um, I remember once visiting a set and seeing all the lights and, and asking him, How do you know where to put all the lights? And he gave me the best advice I've ever had. Mm. He said, Learn to look at light and see what it does, and then when you have to recreate it, you have an image in your mind. Of course, you know, make it look real, and make the lighting invisible just to help tell the story. Sure. Um, Really, it's the best advice.
0: How old were you when he gave you that advice? Uh, Thirteen. Yeah, because one thing I wanted to know is that I guess it must have, in some way I would imagine that it almost, did it feel inevitable that you were going to become a gaffer, or no?
1: No, it didn't, and uh, as I got older... Um, I said something, I think I was maybe um, 17 or 18 or something, and I mm-hmm. said, uh, I think I want to get in the movie business. And he said, no, you don't want to do that. What was I, it I, I said, Isn't why it? not? Yeah. He said, well, there's no security, mm. which, of course, is true. Yeah. And I said, well, you've done pretty well. <laughs> yeah. And he said, but a lot of people don't, mm-hmm. which is also true. Mm-hmm. And so I went to college, mm-hmm. and uh, I was going to be a lawyer, And I dropped out of college for a semester to earn some money. And the quickest way to earn the money was to get in the movie business. Yeah. And 50 years later, I'm still here, you know.
0: Yeah. When you had that inkling that I want to be in the movie business, was it to be a gaffer or were you also interested in other things before you settled on that?
1: Well, it's interesting. I, I thought about my father really always wanted to be a director of photography and he would have been a terrific one. But it was just very hard it's hard now but it was harder then to make that move you think from, so oh, harder then? absolutely it's a different union it's a whole different thing mm-hmm. so one of the cameramen that he knew uh organized a meeting for me at the camera local yeah and i was there with three or four other guys about talking. what age um i think i must have been in my 20 early 20s okay okay um, young adult and uh so the the man conducting the meeting mm-hmm. said, it's very simple. You get a job, you get in the union. I said, but you can't get a job unless you're in the union. Yeah, the catch-22. It's like catch-22. Yes, yeah. Because they really, you know, the union movement is to encourage people to join a union, but not in Hollywood. I know. It was the other way around. It's not as bad today as it was, but it's still difficult. Yeah. Um, but then it was virtually impossible. Mm. Um, and I, I could have... Persevered more, but that was so discouraging that I didn't. And uh, but I uh, I started working uh, as a lighting technician, and uh, I, I became a gaffer pretty quickly. And did you uh,
0: have in the beginning and the the goals to be a DP, even like maybe knowing that your dad wanted well, to? Or
1: I was uh, I was married with children, mm-hmm. and if if you want to. Take a break and say, "Okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to be a DP." Yeah. That's what you have to do. Yes. And how do you support yourself? Because the jobs are going to be few and far between. Right. And so it's really difficult. Uh, you know, if if you're independently wealthy or if you've got a wife that's working full time, yeah, uh, that helps. Sure. But I didn't have either one of those things, and uh, so it's was a
0: pragmatic decision. Pardon? It was a pragmatic decision. That's right.
1: No, no, absolutely, and uh, you know, at a at a certain point, number of times people have said, "You should be a DP." Right. And so there are times when I could have, but I would have been the DP on Halloween Six. Yeah, I understand. Or, or the gaffer (laughs) on Braveheart. Let's see, which do I want to do?
0: Well, here's the question, though, because I know that I'm talking to a lot of people when we sit down, and they are making these choices and they're going a couple rungs down the ladder to get onto a different ladder to come back up that ladder. Now you would have been on, on Braveheart Six, but maybe not for a long time. Like you know that the Ascendant You mean Halloween seat. Six? Oh yeah, what did I say? <laughs> you said Braveheart Six. Oh shit. No, <laughs> no, Halloween Six. Um you know, you didn't wanna you you didn't want to test those waters to see you that, you were worried that it would take too long.
1: That's right. Yeah. And, and also, you're, there's no guarantee of success. Right. Now, now, there's a number of gaffers that have done it. Claudio Miranda certainly has been quite successful, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm not sure what his path was. Right There's a, a guy, I don't know many gaffers because we don't work together, but yeah. one that I met, Robbie Baumgartner, decided he wanted to be a DP mm-hmm. and uh, turned down a number of jobs as a gaffer to continue on that DP path.
0: That's what it takes. Yeah.
1: No, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, and he's been he's done very well. Mm-hmm. You know he worked his way up, but he just recently photographed a ninety eight million dollar movie. Yeah. So wow, pretty great. Yeah. And I, but recently I saw a movie that he photographed that was probably a two million dollar movie
0: mm-hmm. that
1: looked absolutely wonderful. I mean the lighting and the camera movement everything really helped tell the story and create the atmosphere mm-hmm. for what they were trying to to say. And so he's quite talented, and I'm glad that he's gotten some success.
0: Great. Um, in terms of the gaffing, so you decide that I'm gonna, this is what I'm gonna do because I could keep doing great movies at that level, and that's good for me. Was there a project early on that you would say worked to really be a a breakout opportunity for you? Was there something that sticks out in that regard where there was a shift where you felt? Um, uh, some sort of stature be accomplished or anything in that type of way?
1: I, I know what you're saying, but I don't think so. Um,
0: How did it work for you then?
1: Well, as I tell everybody, uh, luck plays a huge part in anyone's success. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and people say, oh, yeah, your dad was a gaffer. No wonder you're successful. Well, that's ridiculous. It gets you in the door. Sure. But it doesn't keep you there. If you can't deliver, you're gone, you know? Yeah. And... Uh, And so if you're offered a job and you can't do it because you're taking something else, that may have been a huge opportunity for you, but you've missed it because you were unlucky enough to not be available or something. Mm -hmm. So um, I got recommended to John Alonzo to do a a job. And uh, I really enjoyed working with him and liked him a lot. And I did six or seven projects with him. Yeah. Uh, He was probably the best handheld operator I've ever seen. Mm. Uh, and uh, we were doing a movie called Sheila Levine is Dead and Living in New York. Okay. With Jeannie Berlin. And the director was Sidney Fury. And we were doing some tests at Paramount. Yeah. And uh, all of a sudden we got a call that the movie had been postponed indefinitely and we were all out of work. Mm. Except John, who had a pay or play, of course. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, so the key grip and i got another job and uh it turns out that Jeannie berlin had rewritten the script and taken it to robert town robert evans and uh said you know i've rewritten the script and he showed it to the director and the director got pardon the pun furious and uh, said no actress is going to rewrite my script and it stormed out of the office and so that's why they postponed the movie but They were doing Chinatown at the time at Paramount, and they weren't happy with the DP, so they let him go, and they hired John Alonzo. So that's the lucky thing for John Alonzo. Right. He got Chinatown because of Jeannie Berlin. (laughs) The job I took instead of Sheila Levine was a movie called Gravy Train, and the cameraman was Jerry Hirschfeld. So that means that's the reason I got to do Young Frankenstein. It's all just happenstance. It's just incredible.
0: Yeah. That's that's a lot to take in. I mean, it kind of. So what do you feel like um, was in your control at that time, just the quality of the work you were doing? And that's really all that's really all there is.
1: I think that's right.
0: And then um, obviously your filmography is is long and impressive. But for you, I was curious what you consider your biggest films that you worked on or the ones that you were um, the most proud of.
1: Well, of course, I've asked that quite a bit, and I do have an answer. Yeah. Uh, There's a movie called The Fisher King that Mm -hmm. I did with Terry Gilliam Mm -hmm. and a British DP named Roger Pratt, both amazingly wonderful people to work with and uh, collaborative and one ideas. And and, uh, I... I, uh, met Roger Pratt because of a producer that I'd worked with on a movie that I didn't particularly want to do, but I did it anyway. And then she recommended me to Roger for the Fisher King. So again, luck.
0: Why, why did you enjoy working with Roger so much? What was it about him in particular?
1: Well, because he was, uh, you know, he wanted to share the, the lighting, you know, he was collaborative. When I first met him, I wanted to meet him because he had been the cameraman on Brazil Mm -hmm. and I, which I really loved. And, uh, but I knew he was a British cameraman, and my understanding was they did all their own lighting. Yeah. And that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a collaboration. Absolutely. Yeah. And so at one point, we were getting along and talking, and he said, are you one of those Hollywood gaffers that wants to set all the lights? <laughs> so I said, uh, no, but I want to be involved in the setting of all the lights. Yeah. He said, that's what I'm looking for. I said, well, great, you know? Yeah. And he said, so there's going to be a gaffer in New York for that part, and then you'll be out here in California. So I don't know what I was thinking, but I said, I'm not interested in doing half a movie. Oh, wow. And and he went, oh, well, uh, so I ended up doing the whole movie.
0: Where did the confidence to say that come from?
1: I have no idea. Really? That, really. That's
0: not normally your bag? or
1: No. None <laughs> I just have no idea it worked though that's right, and uh, one of the in that movie, I don't know how familiar you are with it, but there's this huge scene in Grand Central Station mm-hmm. where Robin Williams follows this young woman home every day until she gets on the subway because he's in love with her, but she doesn't know him and he doesn't really know her mm-hmm. and so they're at Grand Central Station five o'clock in the afternoon and she's coming home from work, yeah, and they walk in, and when we're scouting. Terry Gilliam said, wouldn't it be wonderful if, when they get to the main floor, everyone starts waltzing around the information booth? And the two producers, their jaws dropped, and they went, t <laughs> terry Yeah. Well, that's what we did. Yeah. And so it's 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and all this goes on. Well, of course, we could only shoot from 10 p.m. at night until 6 o'clock in the morning. Sure. So that was a rather huge lighting job. And uh, it was a great experience and it worked out. Yeah, um, famous scene. Yes, that's right. So it just, and recently BAFTA did a tribute to Roger Pratt mm-hmm. in London. And my wife and I went over to be a part of it. And it was just wonderful to see him again. And, and Terry Gilliam was there to see him. And uh, it's, it's absolutely my favorite movie to have worked on.
0: Talking about what you like working about with him, I just was curious, in a general sense, because you've worked with so many DPs over the years, what are, I guess collaborative is certainly on the list, but what are other aspects that you hope for out of a DP? And then, yeah, I guess it would just be the DP.
1: Well, um, what I really...
0: And maybe through each, each step of the process in, in prep and then also in production.
1: Well, I, you just have to be... Um... I want them to see the movie as I do. And I don't like cameramen who kind of stand up and say, hey, look at me. I want the mm. lighting to be invisible. I don't want the people watching the movie to go, oh, that lighting is beautiful. Yeah. Because then they're not following the story. Yeah. The same way with the music or the costumes. Sure. They should just help tell the story. You light a hospital room differently if the patient is recovering or if the patient is dying. Because you're creating a mood, you know. And uh, so people that, you know, have all kinds of equipment and, you know, we've got to have everything. Let's... I interviewed with Steven Soderbergh about doing the movie Traffic. This was going to be his first movie as a DP. And uh, and I'd heard that he was interviewing a lot of gaffers and I didn't know him or anybody near him. Yeah. And uh, But then I got this call to come and meet him. Um, and so we are talking, and he said, uh, "Do you have a style?" And I'd never ever thought of that before.
0: How How old were you? How many years into the into your career? Oh, before? this
1: was this was this was not that long ago. This was 20 years ago. Right. I mean, I'd already been in the business 30 years.
0: You had, and you'd never thought about your own style
1: before. No, because I I don't think you should have a style. I think um, right.
0: I, I guess I see. I know you're going to go. With yeah. The movie should determine.
1: The look. Yeah. But for some reason, um, something popped into my head, and I said, uh, yes, cinema minima.
0: <laughs>
1: and he went, you're my guy, you know, because <laughs> traffic was a, should have, you know, we wanted it to look like a documentary, not like a movie. Sure. And, uh, and the, the way that phrase came to me was that some 20 years before that, I knew a guy who was teaching at the Sherwood Oaks Experimental College. Okay. And he taught a class called Cinéma Minima. And it was how to make movies without a budget. Yeah. And uh, so that somehow popped into my head.
0: That seems to happen to you in pivotal moments that when you movies. It's kind of an amazing <laughs> gift.
1: No it is. And uh, and that I did, you know, six or seven movies with Steven and uh, it Yeah, was, I wanted
0: to talk to you about one. I mean Ocean's 11 is one of my favorite movies of all time and for me I think the thing that I love the most about it is it, it's such a it's a masterpiece in pace just that thing moves the second you could be flipping the channels and if you wherever you land on it at whatever point in the movie you are hooked it's right. a, it's a wave and you're you're riding it to the finish because it just never it's relentless and it's great um, what was it I, I I'm just like geeking out to talk to you about it what was what was the process like in in, in prep for that
1: well it's interesting we were doing traffic and everything was great and He told me he was gonna do Ocean's Eleven and he was gonna have Harris Saviti shoot it. I said, oh, you know, he's a wonderful DP, great. Uh And and then a couple of weeks later, he called me and he said, you know, I'm gonna shoot it myself. He said, uh, after traffic, he said, I don't think it would be fair to Harris for me to hire a DP because I'm just too used to being in charge, you know? Mm. I said, okay. So he said, would you like to do Ocean's Eleven? I said, oh, it's one of my favorite movies. He said, have you seen it lately? So I said, "Well, I haven't seen it in forty years." Yeah. He said, "You should take a look," and so I did. And the first one is just—it's wonderful because it's the—you the, know—the the Rat Pack and all of that sure, stuff. Sure, yeah, it doesn't—it doesn't hold. No, and the you know—nothing about it is terrific. But um, <laughs> but Jerry Weintraub was the producer, who is just an amazing guy, and uh, and Stephen just. Uh, It's funny, on about the second day of shooting, Jerry turned to me and he said, uh, you know, this this Soderbergh, he's he's not directing the actors. So I said, Jerry, if the actors are doing what he likes, he doesn't have to say anything. Yeah. Oh, I guess so. Well,
0: because I was going to ask you, you know, in those situations where the director is DPing, how does that change your job? Are you shouldering a bit more... Of the of of DP responsibilities in any way because of that,
1: Um, or no, not any more than I've done on a lot of other pictures. Um, Yeah, you know, Stephen was uh, operating the camera Mm -hmm. and you know figuring out the shots and the lenses and positions and all that. So I was doing the lighting. Yeah. and you know he was the director of photography, and so if what I was doing he wanted to change, we would change. But that didn't happen very often. Uh, because we were thinking along the same lines of, yeah. you know, make it look real. And uh, we went up to the Bellagio and shot some tests and uh, because they were really nice to us and and gave us the casino from 6 in the morning until 2 in the afternoon. And usually they make you go there at 2 in the morning until 6 in the morning or right, something. You know. right. Um, and it turns out they had all these recessed lights. Mm-hmm. That were on dimmers. Already. That's right. And they were down about 50%. So we had them turned up full. Yeah. And then all we had to do was put a little lighting in the background for depth and a little lighting in the foreground for the actors. There you go.
0: Yeah. When it comes to, to like, prep, you know, I'm sure that the DP is looking at a lot of referential things with the director. Do you try to be involved in that that type of... um, Research and the, the the way in which a, a DP and a director will try to get on the same page with visual language. How much do you like to see that type of documentation, or are you just trying to hear about it from a technical aspect with the DP and kind of just run with it?
1: No, no. I, you know, the DP and I, on almost all the movies, will go over the location photographs and do the scouting and and determine. What needs to be done? What sort of equipment we need, and what are we trying to say and do? Yeah. um, I'm just about to start a movie, and I've been over the photographs with the DP, and we've talked about what to do. And it's it's a low budget movie, which uh, I've been doing lately, which I really like. Yeah. Because everybody's there for the same reason—to make a good movie, not to get rich. Sure. And uh, it's certainly more challenging. We don't have all the equipment in the world. Yeah. Cinema minima. There it is. And, uh, and now it's become easier and easier because the ASA has gone up. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to use the Sony Venice camera, which has a native ASA of 2500.
0: Yeah, you could have two modes. It's a different world.
1: It is. It changes and
0: how you're thinking a lot.
1: But also the, the latitude of the, of the image has changed from the beginning the beginning was quite narrow now it's it's like a dozen stops or something I mean it's just incredible
0: oh no more than that yeah yeah. Uh, (laughs) um, you question that
1: so it's it's just you know you don't want the outside to go white but Mm -hmm. you don't want it to be in balance either because that doesn't look real either you know
0: yeah yeah Um, you talked about working with with Soderbergh and Pratt Um, when it comes to E.T. What was that type of experience like, um, not just with the DP, but also with, with Spielberg?
1: Well, that was... Uh, so, I was working on a movie called Cannery Row, and Alan Davio came to see me mm-hmm. to talk to me about doing E.T. Mm-hmm. And it turns out, because he was a very inexperienced DP, he had never done a feature... Yeah. They oh, wanted, really? I was not aware of that. He'd done one or two television movies, but never a feature. Oh, my gosh. And uh, so they wanted him to have an old, experienced gaffer. I wasn't as old as I am now, but I was older. You
0: had some seniority?
1: Uh, that's right. And uh, so we had a wonderful time. Um, and uh, I tend to make a lot of suggestions yeah. um, about everything, not just about lighting, what do you mean by that? Oh, if I see something, I think, I I speak up.
0: For different departments, you mean? That's right.
1: And so I would make suggestions to Steven Spielberg all the time, <laughs> and he would say, No, 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 I don't want to do that. But then he would think about it, and he'd say, No, no let, yeah, we should do that. And so I realized that he was so focused on what he was doing mm. that suggestions were kind of a distraction. That you know, and uh, but then he was smart enough. To to think about it and go, not always, but yeah. yes, let's do that. Uh, and then I also realized that I did that, that if someone would make a suggestion to me about lighting, I would go, no, no, no. Mm. So now I don't do that anymore. I, I consider people's suggestions. And so that was a big help. Um, did
0: you make that realization about yourself on that set as well? Absolutely. Or that took, oh, no, really?
1: Absolutely. And, uh, so again, we. Do
0: you have any um, recollections of what things you influenced, or what was what things other people influenced you with?
1: Um, not really. Um, yeah, it's, you it's, know, it's, it's, it's just, been
0: a long time. I understand.
1: It has. Yeah. That's been uh, thirty-eight years.
0: Yeah. Um, is there any uh, one scene from that movie that sticks out that was um, maybe the most challenging uh, for you from a gaffing perspective?
1: Uh, All of it was pretty challenging. And again, um, not not a huge budget. Um, Stephen signed a completion bond for the movie and put up his furniture, according to him, As so we'd get slowed down a little bit. He'd say, hurry, guys, hurry. I'm going to lose my furniture. (laughs) But uh, it was really a pleasant set. And uh, Henry Thomas... um, was a wonderful young boy who I worked with later on on Legends of the Fall. Wow. And uh, it was really something. John Toll, old, old friend of mine, did behind the scenes documentary on the making of E.T.
0: No way, really.
1: And in the course of that, he asked Henry, Henry, what's it like when you're acting against uh, something that's not real? Mm. And Henry said, Et's real to me, and that's perfect. Also, recently, I actually posted a the uh, film of Henry Thomas uh, applying to become Henry, become the Et character. Oh
0: yeah, that's I've seen that. It's it's astonishing. It's It's really just marvelous. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean he he got it in the room for clear reasons.
1: That's right. Yeah. His audition tape. So, uh,
0: so I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about your filmography and all of the movies, and it it's just seems to be back to back to back for for decades. And I guess I I on paper it looks like the whole time that there was a certain level of control and that there was a certain level of consistency. And from the personal experience that you actually went through, like living a life in the Hollywood circuit, just the the highs and lows or the was there periods of uncertainty about getting another gig? Because it seems from the outside looking in that, that, you know, if there's any career that seems so rock steady, it was yours.
1: Well, I don't think anybody's career is rock steady. I mean, there's ups and downs. Mm -hmm. and you know, many years ago when I would finish a movie and Two or three days later, I'd convinced myself I was never going to work again. <laughs> and uh, as silly as that may sound, I I really did. Well, it I'm really, chuckling
0: because you know, obviously, you know, if someone in my position, I can feel that way, and it's interesting to hear. What do you think? Why do you think you were feeling that when you when you're in
1: such a different place? But you just you you never know where your next job is coming from. Yeah. Or you or whether you're going to have one. Yeah. And uh, but finally, I told myself. You know, when you work on a movie, it is so intense that you need a break in between. Mm-hmm. And if you can't enjoy those breaks, then you just start doing television where there's more consistency and more, you know, right? I don't want to do that. So then enjoy the time off.
0: Yeah. How old that, were you when you think that you like actually really w- were able to embody that idea?
1: Probably 40. Yeah. Um, but I really, I, I started kind of old.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: Well, I mean, I didn't start working as an electrician until I was 26.
0: Well, right, because you went on on the whole not film mode for a little while.
1: Right, school and different jobs. And um, and, uh, so now, and also, my father never looked for work. And sometimes he'd have quite a bit of time off. And I'd say, you know, why don't you call Joe Byrock and see what he's doing? Yeah. He's got my number. I said, No, I know he's got your number, but maybe he doesn't know you're available, you know? Yeah. But so that's the way I grew up. And so I've never looked for work.
0: Did your father ever discuss ever explain that that mentality? No. What do you think? It's it was? just I, I think he was shy. Just shy? Yeah. It wasn't a tactic in any way? No, no, no. You think no. He, like he should have he should have called him.
1: That's right. Um, and maybe maybe I should have too, but I, and I did have, a not horrible time off, but I had more time than I wanted off, and I probably should have called somebody. Yeah. But uh, I just didn't know how to do that, you know. And now you just go online or something and yeah. say I'm available. But
0: has that ever has that gotten easier with with more experience and more time?
1: What not not looking Can't, for work? It,
0: no, asking people. Oh, I don't. So you've, you've held to that? Yeah, no, I don't. Even though you feel like you, that, that, that it's not the, the it's best worked so, thing? It's worked so far. It certainly has. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at, at a certain point, it's like, why? Well, you no, know, that's, that's totally true. Um, when you're on any of these, like the, the, the touchstone films of your career, was there a, did, did any of, did it feel, did those sets feel different? Or is it always, you never know, and then some hit and some don't? Or did did any stand out while you were doing it? like you know what something something special is happening?
1: Absolutely. Um, while we were doing E. T., there was no question it was going to be a special movie. Why? Well, be, because you could see it the way the the kids the kids were so wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, Drew Barrymore when she was like seven years old or something it's yeah. just amazing. Um, and it you could just you could just feel it you know. Um, and I think during Braveheart. Uh, we knew we were making something really special. Um,
0: again, what what made it stand out? Why just, why did it feel that way?
1: Um, just what you were watching, you know, the scenes you were watching, and and the way that the actors were doing it, you know. Um, and again, that's another wonderful movie to work on because Mel Gibson was not only the actor but the director, and it was his second movie. But the first movie was quite small, very good, but small. So this is something that was you know really big for him yeah and John told the DP could have just said here and this is what we're going to do but he wanted to make sure that Mel got the movie that he wanted to make and so he let Mel figure it out you know with some guidance and things but not taking over mm-hmm. and uh, so we got a little behind schedule yeah well, not, I was going to ask. Not a surprise.
0: When you are in that situation where the director is the lead actor, that would then make I would assume somewhat how the DP, the DP's responsibilities get augmented. Does that end up affecting uh, your approach in any way? To help to help the DP who's who's handling it a little differently, perhaps.
1: Well, no, we all we just all worked as a team, yeah. you know, and uh, so when we started getting behind, John would say. We're going to get fired. We're going to get fired. Because they, they never fire the director, they fire the DP, you know.
0: Especially if he's the lead actor.
1: That's right. Yeah. And then one morning we were driving to work in, in Ireland and he said, uh, I have good news and I have bad news. I said, well, what's the good news? We're not going to get fired. Well, what's the bad news? We have to finish the movie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Was there a moment that solidified that for him, that he knew that? Yeah. What happened? I don't know. Oh, really?
1: Yeah. Interesting. Um, we shot for 108 days. It's the longest movie I've ever worked on. Mm-hmm. And 108. Uh, yes. My God. It's a long time. That's a long time. We were six weeks in Scotland and 16 weeks in uh, Ireland.
0: What was taking so long? It's,
1: it's a big movie. But there, I, are mean, a, I
0: mean, there are a lot of big movies. They don't take that.
1: Oh, well, that's not the longest movie. I mean, yeah, uh, Apocalypse Now. Okay. You yeah. How many yeah, days I, they shot.
0: No, I, uh, I I know it's an absolutely crazy
1: number. Two hundred and thirty-eight days. Yeah. Now that, <laughs> no, but um, you know that's um, uh, seventeen weeks or something we shot. Yeah. You know it's not enormously long. Right. Yeah, I guess. When and look at it that wasn't. Way. It wasn't a huge budget. Hmm. Uh, we, uh, we, had, we, sh- we shot in Ireland. We had 750 Irish reservists mm-hmm. play the soldiers, play both the Scottish and the British soldiers. Yeah. So it was a great experience.
0: And then that, that experience kept going for those two movies with John Toll that went to the Oscars.
1: Well, he won an Oscar for Legends of the Fall, which was the f- first time I worked with him as a DP. No, not really. The second time, actually. Yeah. But it was his second feature. Mm-hmm. And then we went to Braveheart, and he won another Oscar for that.
0: Now, what is that experience like from, from your position? The, the, the things that happened to the movie afterwards, um, obviously, it's a proud accomplishment. Are our, our, is your your career changes in a way that in a way that in the I guess it wouldn't be in the same level of impact, but is there um, something for being on that that uh, team?
1: I don't I don't think so. I mean it was of a, a course, you know, wonderful that he won those Oscars. Yeah. Um, and he deserved both of them. Mhm. Um but I you know, I, I think it affects the person that actually wins the award much more than anybody that was there. Mhm. Uh you know, the the key grip, the gaffer, the camera operator, the assistants, it's all great, but um you know, I don't know.
0: Yeah. No, I understand. I understand. Um, and I guess the one last technical question that I was just curious about, just in terms of the prep, what specific things do you feel the DPs that are the most successful and the ones that you enjoy working with the most, what, what, is, what things are they doing in prep that set themselves up and set you up that might be different than, than experiences that don't go as well or collaborations that you don't like as much? Is there anything that you can kind of discern
1: well, I think it, it's important that the DP get in sync with the director and understand what it is he's trying to do. Yeah. And so that then when we actually get started shooting, a lot of it can be unsaid, you know, and that's the same thing as my part of prep with the DP is to understand what he's trying to do and to make sure we're all heading in the same direction. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a there's a wonderful book called Making Movies. mm mm-hmm. um, and it talks about um, how we all have to be going in the same direction. If the production designer is going this way and the DP is going that way, but the director is going, oh, my, this is a nightmare. So
0: Yeah. And I know that you have to, the time is short, so I, I want to ask this, this last um, question that with a career as storied as yours, what, what, are you, what are you still looking for in the work that you're doing? And what do you hope for? For the, for the work ahead? Well,
1: um, I'm in a position now which is absolutely wonderful in that I only take the jobs that I really want to do. That's great. Um, I ask to read the script. I want to be able to work on projects that I really like mm-hmm. with people that I really want to work with. And, uh, and that's why lately they've been kind of low budget things because those are the people that I most want to help. Yeah, that's nice. And uh, I'm working, I'm starting next week with a, a DP from Finland that I did a movie with a couple of years ago, and we've been trying to get back together since then, Peter Flickenberg, who is absolutely, has a great eye and a wonderful way of working, and I, I'm really looking forward to it. And uh, it's a small little project in New Mexico, and but mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Oh, I like one, one more question then. All right. Um, how How do you... And I guess it's probably always relative, so I guess just now, how are you defining success for yourself?
1: I guess being happy um, truly that I think I've always defined it that way is is doing projects that you love mm-hmm. the, the The work is too hard to be doing something that you don't care about mm. or that you oh I don't know why I'm doing this, and I got to pay the bills. Luckily, I haven't had to do that yeah. And, um, I may have taken a couple of projects and I can't even remember what they are that I haven't been in love with, but not very many. And, uh, it's a great position to be in, you know? It is. Um, and you, you know, you're, you're helping people, uh, accomplish something that they've been dreaming about quite often for years. You know, oh, if I could only make this movie and now I'm actually making it and all these people are helping me do it. Is, I mean it doesn't get better than that no it really doesn't
0: no well that's i think that's a great place a great place to end uh thank you so much for your time and for your stories
1: you're welcome thank you very much i enjoyed it